You appreciate your worship team? Wow. Woo. Good stuff. We're second in our series on relationships out of Romans 12 through 16. I saw an Associated Press account about Cindy Hartman of Conway, Arkansas. She walked into her house to answer the phone and was confronted by a burglar. He ripped the phone cord out of the wall and ordered her into a closet. He'd already emptied her house of most of its contents and had loaded them into a truck outside where a woman was waiting to drive them away. Miss Hartman immediately dropped to her knees and asked the burglar if she could pray for him. She said, I want you to know that God loves you and I forgive you. The burglar apologized. And then he yelled out the door to the woman in the pickup, we've got to unload all this. This is a Christian home and a Christian family. We can't do this to them. Hartman stayed on her knees, and as she did, the burglar returned the furniture he had taken from her home, and then he took the bullets out of his gun, handed the gun to Miss Hartman, and walked out the door. She literally did what Jesus tells us to do, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. Today's text is perhaps the most difficult command to obey in our personal lives. Both Jesus and Paul are very clear about this aspect of discipleship. I couldn't find any fancy interpretations to dance around this text. I can't explain it away. It is very clear what Paul has to say when it comes to our relationship with those who've hurt us and those who might be enemies. Romans 12, 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we are to love our enemies, pray for those that persecute you, do good to those who want to do harm to you. On the other hand, in Psalm 3, David begs God, strike all my enemies on the jaw. Give them a good left hook. And I imagine for most of us, it's a little more like that. There's times we've felt, I don't get mad, I just get even. I knew a man named Bob, he'd just gone through a messy divorce, and it was mostly his fault. And he was messing around with another woman. And this woman's husband had a friend who didn't think Bob's indiscretion with his friend's wife was appropriate. So he found Bob and beat the tar out of him. And to be honest, Bob deserved it. He wrecked his own marriage and now he was wrecking another. And this man gave him what he deserved. He returned evil for evil. Now Bob had, had a wife and three children. He betrayed them all. How does that wife and his kids return good for evil? What is so frustrating is Christianity is a religion in which the bad guys have all the advantages. Doesn't that just tick you off? Bad people can step on you 50 times and you're supposed to not retaliate. They can talk bad about you. They can talk about you behind your back and it's your job to forgive them. We're not allowed to get even. The Bible tells me I've been forgiven for sinning against God. This sounds a little loud to me. I don't know how it is out there, but a little echo here. But anyway, the Bible says I've forgiven for sinning against God and God expects me to extend that same grace to others who sin against me. And to be honest, I don't like it. I'm not sure I can do it. I'm not sure I can love my enemies. Now, I believe having enemies for some people, frankly, is enjoyable. They wouldn't know what to do if they didn't have enemies in conflict in life. They just like the drama. 
anger and vengeance, gets that adrenaline going, it's exciting, it gives purpose for living. Someone said losing an enemy is as upsetting as losing a friend. Forgiveness isn't, it's just not as exciting as hate. It doesn't get the adrenaline going. It doesn't bring the pleasure that anger does. When you forgive, you lose power. You trade in your pride and ego. You give up your sense of justice and righteousness. You have to give up an awfully lot to forgive. I've come away from this text convinced only few can do this. Only the strong. Only the most mature. Now, before we get into Paul's dealings with our enemies, I want to give you some reasons that conflict and enemies actually can be good for us. Through the years, I've grown to appreciate those who have opposed me or didn't like me or maybe hurt me because they've done some good things for me. I don't like conflict, but I do like what God has done in some of those situations. For one thing, enemies are often right. I've had people criticize me severely, and I didn't like it. I didn't think it was deserved. But when it all played out, part of the criticism was on target. In fact, in almost any criticism, there's an element of truth. And I think that's why I take criticism so personally. I know they're probably right. And whenever we refuse to listen to someone who's criticizing us or disagreeing with us, and maybe even someone who's an out-out enemy, and we think we're totally innocent in this, we're probably blind to ourselves. God may be speaking through your critic. You want to be wise? According to the book of Proverbs, listen to your critics. They will say some things clearly that you need to hear, that your friends may not say, but you need to hear it. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you because a wise man knows there's some truth in the rebuke. Here's another thing. Enemies can help us clarify our beliefs. When someone questions why we're doing something or criticizes what we're doing, it forces us to think it through. Is this really the right thing? Am I really thinking straight on this? Have we covered all the angles or are we rushing into something? And it forces us to justify and rethink why we're doing what we do or why we believe what we believe. For instance, when churches go into building programs or any major change, it is inevitable there will be critics on both sides of the issue. And critics on both sides serve a purpose. They almost always will help. Okay, we've got to clarify. Why are we doing this? Think this through. What's our purpose? What's our mission? That's good. And then another thing, enemies can actually strengthen our faith. One way God tests us and molds us is through difficult relationships. God can turn a conflict into growth and maturity. Uh, without conflict and problems, if you think about it, we probably wouldn't have most of the New Testament. It was out of conflict and because of problems that Paul wrote to the churches. Without conflict, we probably wouldn't have had the Protestant Reformation. Without conflict, we wouldn't have had the Restoration Movement out of which our churches grew. You know, God has brought some good out of negative experiences, and enemies can test us and strengthen us. And one other positive about conflict. Conflict is inevitable in a healthy church. If there's no conflict in a church, either A, the issues are being swept under the rug, we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to deal with it, we're not going to do anything to hurt anyone, or B, the church is dead. There's no cares. They, no one cares. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's easy to keep peace in a cemetery. Healthy churches change through the years. They're alive. And when things change, there's going to be some disagreement. And the way to avoid conflict is just to stay the same, never change, don't take any chances. And many churches die a slow death because they want to avoid the conflict. You know, let's keep the peace. And if we don't have some conflict or some disagreement, there's something wrong. Even in marriage or friendship, a little bit of conflict means both of you are thinking. Three boys were bragging. This is my joke for the day, so please laugh. One boy said, my dad owns a farm. 
The second boy bragged, my dad owns a factory. The third boy said, my dad owns hell. He was a preacher's kid. He said, my mom told me that the elders gave it to him last night. <laughs> that's never happened here. So anyway, the, that's actually true. Anyway, the Bible is full of stories of discord and strife among God's people. The disciples argued, Paul and Peter Paul and Barnabas, the widows of Jerusalem, two women in the Philippian church, and they're just under the vision. It's all through the Bible. Conflict's inevitable. Sometimes it's necessary, and actually sometimes it's healthy. So conflict in enemies can become a source of strength and growth, can be a good thing, but, and I think this is what Paul is getting at, conflict can also be deadly, relationally and spiritually. And that's Paul's concern here because conflict can escalate, it can divide, and it can sap energy. And it so easily can destroy relationships and churches. So all conflict has some danger associated with it. So what are we to do? Here's what Paul says. I want you to notice, first of all, all the do nots. Verse 17, do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge in verse 19. Verse 21, do not overcome by, be overcome by evil. Don't say it. Don't do it. Don't post it. Don't make things worse. You restrain yourself. Sometimes you need to just tell yourself, shut up. Just shut up. Do not. Proverbs says, a fool gives full vent to his anger. But a wise man keeps himself under control. Also, notice the all-inclusive pronouns. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So let me paraphrase that. To absolutely no one without exception should you be giving back whatever evil that person gives to you. To absolutely no one without exception should you be giving back whatever evil that person gives you. And that takes a strong person. The weak will not be able to abide by this. If you want to be conformed to the world, which we talked about last week, you go ahead and retaliate. Go ahead and lash out with your tongue. Go ahead and let her rip. Just get them. That's like the world. This text, and then the next one says there's actually only two avengers, two authorities that are allowed to punish wrongdoers, God and government. You say, oh, great, leave it to our government to carry out justice. They're part of the problem. And God, can you really trust God to make things right? See, not taking vengeance is one of the supreme acts of faith. You have to say, God will deal with this. He's promised it in his word. I know he will. I trust him. He may do it through government, you know, through legal means. Sometimes governments are wrong, though. So he will deal with it somehow because he is just and justice will win. You have to believe that. Now, there is another avenger in other texts. Actually, the church also has authority and responsibility to administer discipline when it's in the church. If someone is divisive, it needs to be dealt with, and it will. If God is the avenger, that means vengeance is not evil. And I don't want to be careful here. I can hear people walking out. Preacher said vengeance is good. Nah, not exactly. Avenge means to secure someone's right to seek justice. We are commanded to work for justice, especially for the poor, the weak, orphans, and widows. And very often the reason we are tempted to retaliate is injustice has been done. And we have this urge to make it right. And that urge to make things right is not necessarily evil. We want justice. So does God. And God will bring about justice sooner or later. People will reap what they sow. That's a promise. And you will get the harvest of what you plant. But in the meantime, we extend mercy and forgiveness. We're not the avengers. We're not qualified to be the judge. We're all blind. 
to a certain extent. Vengeance is good when it's done by the right person, in the right way, at the right time. And you and I are not the right people, and this is not the right time, and we would not do it in the right way. And yes, some people deserve to be treated with punishment. Some people are just, let's say it, rotten. But that some includes a little bit of you and a little bit of me, because God doesn't give any of us what we really deserve. When someone is hurt and they tell me about it, I feel for them. But I also pray this prayer. I pray that they will see the wrong in their own life that they have committed. No one is innocent. And all of us need forgiveness. And that's the heart of Christianity, forgiveness. Which means the heart of Christianity is also unfairness. Grace and forgiveness is always unfair. Jesus hanging on the cross was not fair. When you forgive someone else, it's not fair. You have to pay a price and swallow the injustice. It's just not right. It's not fair. And the deeper the hurt, the higher the price. And again, only the strong can do this. Now, so Paul says, do not do this, do not do that. But it gets worse. There's actually more to forgiveness in this text. We have all these don'ts, don't retaliate, don't seek vengeance. But there's also some do's. Do what is right. Do live at peace with everyone. Do feed your enemy. Do give him something to drink. Do overcome evil with good. Now, a lot of people say, well, I've forgiven because I don't have any feelings anymore, any bad feelings anymore, and now I just kind of avoid that person. Well, that's the don't part. Good enough. Good, good enough for you. But it's not good enough for Paul, okay? I've sat in meetings where two Christians could barely look at each other. And one would say, well, I don't have anything, uh, any hard feelings. I don't have anything against him or her. You know, we just don't talk anymore. And we think we've done our duty. I do not seek a vengeance. I do not get even. I, I'm doing the do nots. Paul says, well, there's another step here. He says, on the contrary, you do the opposite of what everyone expects. And instead of avoiding that person, you serve him or her, care for him or her, do everything you can to make peace with him. Are you kidding? Make peace with him, her? Now, there's an exception clause that says, if it is possible, seek peace with everyone. Now, sometimes it's not possible. I just love the Bible. It's so realistic about this sin-filled world. Sometimes there cannot be reconciliation. A wife could say, I did not want the divorce. She did all she could to live at peace. There's only so much you can do. And Paul knew the painful disruption of relationships as a fact of life. He had experienced it himself in falling out with Barnabas. But we are to do all we can to restore the relationship and to reconcile, even if you have been the one that's been wronged. Our efforts to restore should be continued and continued and continued some more and continued even more until we are thoroughly convinced that reconciliation is absolutely impossible. He says, if it is possible, you save that marriage. You save or restore that relationship. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, you do everything you can. A few people can do the don'ts. Don't retaliate. Don't seek revenge. Even fewer can do the do's. I had a neighbor lady in Modesto, my student ministry in Modesto, Illinois, um, several years ago, and she hated all Christian church preachers. And I was a Christian church preacher. And she hated all Christian church preachers because she hated the Christian church. And what's really interesting is she lived right next door to the Christian church parsonage. And so she grew up this great big hedge uh, between her house and the parsonage, you know, just to avoid any contact with that Christian church preacher. 
And I found out eventually that she hated the Christian church because the Christian church received one-third of her mother's inheritance. Isn't it funny how it often comes down to money? And I felt bad about this. I, I, didn't, I don't like conflict. I was in my 20s and felt bad about this animosity. And I tried to talk to her when she was out in the backyard. And she was going to grunt, you know, you know. You know, and a godly woman in the church finally told me, you know, Mark, you don't have to beat yourself up if someone refuses to like you. And that was helpful. But that does not give me off the hook to avoid her. Well, the old bag, just let her go, you know. I am called to do kind things. Love your enemies. Pray for them. And after five years, there were little sparks of civility. That's the best we could do as far as it depends on you. Now, every one of us carries a bucket. Now, some of you thought we had a leak. I know, but that's not the case here. Uh, everyone carries a bucket, either of water or gasoline. And when conflict arises between us and another person, and they will arise, you're either pouring water on it or fire uh, or gasoline on it. So which bucket are you carrying? What are you going to pour on the fire? Paul says when we do good, when we do the water thing, we're actually heaping coals of fire on their, our enemies. Now, that's kind of interesting. We would think, well, putting gasoline on the fire would heap, you know, make them burn. No, it's actually the water that will make them burn. Now, some think that this means your kindness will embarrass them and shame them and make them feel bad for mistreating you, and it, it'll burn, burn their heads. Let's get the picture up there. Kind of like that, you know. You're really going to make them suffer, you know, because of your kindness. Well, if that's what it means... To put coals of fire on your head will make them feel bad. What it sounds like is my kindness is intended to make them hurt, you know, to harm them and purposely make them feel bad. That is not the context of this at all. The context of the whole passage is doing good for your enemies. So I went back to Proverbs, which what Paul quotes to see the context of this. In Proverbs 25, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink, and doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And Paul quotes that pretty much verbatim. But the very next verse in Proverbs, verse 23, says this, and it gives a little insight, I think, what's going on here. Like a north wind that brings unexpected rain is a sly tongue which provokes a horrified look. Now, a north wind does not bring rain in Israel. So what's going on here? A north wind in the Middle East comes off the Mediterranean and would blow wind to what country? Egypt, going to the south. So the north wind comes off the Mediterranean, brings rain to Egypt, and it is well known that many of these proverbs were adapted from Egyptian culture. And if this is an Egyptian proverb, we need to look to Egyptian culture for its meaning. And in Egypt... If you wronged someone, if you had sinned against someone, you would go to that person with a clay dish on your head with burning coals. And that was a sign that you were wanting to reconcile the relationship and repenting of the wrong you did to that person. So burning coals on the head is a sign of repentance. And this Proverbs is saying, if you act kindly, give them water, they will come to you with burning coals on their head in an attitude of repentance. You're not wanting to shame them or embarrass them when you're doing good to them. You're wanting to build the bridge. And your goodness may bring them to reconcile with you. And I have found this to be true. Most people will respond to acts of reconciliation and kindness. Some will not. Some are not ready. But you are responsible to do as much as you can do, as far as is possible with you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if we don't do this, 
If we don't love our enemies, we're really no different than the world. If you only love those who love you, you are called, uh, you're really not doing what Jesus called you to do. I want to tell you a story about a minister in Canada. Uh, he got fired by his church, and he was fired because he refused a request by the elders to take a course to improve his pastoral skills. Don't get any ideas here. But the board asked him to take this course on improving his pastoral skills, and when he did not, the board voted to dismiss him. He thought it was unfair, took them to court. And after an extensive court battle, all in all about eight years' worth, the minister won. And the church was forced to rehire him and pay him eight years' back pay, legal costs and benefits, close to a half a million dollars. And I thought, rehire him? What kind of ministry do you think he had from then on? Serving a church you just sued, you know? Now, according to the courts, legally, that was the fair thing. The church got what they deserved. They did him wrong. He won the case. Did he win? And sometimes we get into these battles and we, I won. We'll see. Did you? Jesus said the world can do that kind of stuff. You be like your heavenly father. Now what's our heavenly father like? Well, he's good to his enemies. He sends rain and sunshine on his enemies. He blesses his enemies. He sends his son to die for his enemies. You be like your heavenly father, not like the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died at the hands of Hitler in a concentration camp, and he was a great theologian, and he said, love your enemies was the peculiar, the extraordinary, the unusual doctrine that sets Christianity apart from others. You want to be like Jesus? Bless those who persecute you. I don't know if I can do this. Only the strong can do this. I tend to believe the children's song, probably the first song our kids learn in church or Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak. But he is strong. I'm, I'm one of the little ones. We are weak. He is strong. And this text, as much as any text in the Bible, drives me back to Jesus to get some help. This text forces me to see my need for his power and his strength and grace living in me and flowing through me because I cannot do this on my own. I am weak. He is strong. Jesus encountered more conflict than any of us, and he never retaliated. His story did not end well. Those he loved and prayed for are those who killed him. But he overcame evil with good. His death conquered our sin. And when we gather around his table, he tells us we are to discern the body of Christ. And I believe that's a dual application there. We are to discern his body, his broken body, broken for us on the cross, his physical body, but it also means we are to discern the body of Christ, the church, one another. The Lord's Supper is a healing meal to heal a rift between us and God, but also to heal the rift between us and a brother and sister. I heard of a church group that does a special service periodically just for forgiveness and reconciliation. After they have some teaching from the Bible, each participant is asked to identify some issues in their life that require some forgiveness. And then they'd bring out a large crystal bowl of water and they would submerge their hands in it and and cup their hands and hold the water. And that is, they would pray for the grace to forgive. They would gradually open their hands to symbolically release the grievance. Let it go. So the Lord's Supper is two releasings. It's 
God releasing the grievance against us. But there's a second part, and that's us releasing the grievance against a brother or sister. To the woman in the pickup truck, the burglar said, we've got to unload all this. This is a Christian home. We've got to unload it. This is a Christian church, a Christian family. We've got to unload it. Let it go. Father, we know we are incomplete. We know that even though you've redeemed us and saved us and made us new creatures, that old nature rears its ugly head. And today I pray and we pray together for your spirit to fill us. Lord, we pray for individuals who might be in conflict to give them strength and wisdom and courage to take the steps to reconcile. We pray for marriages that are in conflict. Maybe they've grown cold and hard. We pray for the melting of hearts that someone will take that first step. We pray for unity in this church and that we would not avoid conflict or try to hide it, but just deal with it in the ways you have laid out for us. Help us be a blessing to one another and a witness to this world and to this community. In Jesus we do it. Amen. As we continue our worship together this morning, we're going to enter into a time of communion. Um, and as the, as the trays are passed and as you get a, a piece of bread and a little cup of juice, uh, let us remember that, that forgiveness and that grace that is freely given to us, um, to all who accept it. Uh, just like Mark was saying, um, we, we have to let it go uh, because Jesus let it go. Um, he paid the price for, for all of our sins on the cross when he died um, so that we could be right with him again. So, so as the ushers uh, come forward and pass the trays, uh, we're going to be playing quietly. Um, just take this time and remember that, that that little piece of bread is, is the body that represents